Good morning, everybody. If you brought your Bibles, we'll be in Esther chapter 1, verse 1 in just a moment. We're beginning a three-week series this morning uh, just from the book of Esther. I'm excited about it. We're going to cover the first two chapters this morning, the next two chapters next week, and then the week after that, we'll wrap up uh, the entire book. So three weeks in total. Uh, If you are familiar with the south side of South Bend, one of the unique features in it is we have a fairly large Jewish community all around us. In fact, even right next to our church, if you were just to jump over the fence line, uh, what you'll hit is the synagogue that's just right over here. And it's also a rabbinic school that trains uh, rabbis in regards to going out in terms of their profession. And even graduating from Riley just a few years ago, uh, my memory is that I'd say probably about 20, 25% of uh, my class was made up of my Jewish friends. And so uh, you kind of, in that context, become a little bit familiar in regards to all the holidays uh, that the Jewish community gets to celebrate. And I remember being jealous as a student of when they got to take a day off that I didn't because they were observing their own holidays. And so the Jewish community around us, they observe many throughout the year, seven that are specifically prescribed in the Old Testament, the law or the Torah. And so throughout the year, they will celebrate Passover, which is a huge feast that they celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the, first, the Feast of First Fruits, uh, the, the, feast of, uh, the, the Festival of Weeks, or Pentecost as we call it, Rosh Hashanah is another one, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and Sukkoth, which is the Feast of the Tabernacle. In fact, if you ever notice, uh, at times during the Feast of Tabernacle, uh, they build a little uh, shelter in their yard. If you've ever seen like little, it looks like a wooden uh, shed structure, uh, that's the time of the year when they're celebrating the Feast of the Tabernacle. And then there's two festivals that they celebrate that are not found in the law or the Old Testament. The first of that overlaps our Christmas time is, anyone remember what it is? Hanukkah. And then the second one that's not prescribed in the Old Testament, and the one for our consideration as we begin the series, is the Festival of Purim is the name of it. The festival of Purim is the most fun-filled, action-packed day of the Jewish year. And if you ask the Jewish community to describe it and explain it, they will compare it most likely to a combination of both Halloween and Mardi Gras. Purim is the annual celebration and retelling of the story of Esther which is the book that we're about to study. And it always falls on the 14th of Adar, which is on the Jewish calendar. So you should probably put that in your Google calendar on the 14th of Adar, which doesn't mean anything to you, I'm sure, because you don't follow the Jewish calendar. In 2016, it will fall on March 23rd and March 24th. That's when they celebrate uh, the festival of Purim. And so uh, in it, it's a little two months early here, but a typical celebration would look like this. One, everybody gets dressed up in costumes. In fact, you can see a couple pictures here of uh, what are parades in Israel as, they fell, uh, as we celebrate. And you can see everybody's in costume, especially the kids, just like you would sometimes during Halloween. And in it, in costume, you would head to your synagogue to hear the reading of the book of Esther, or Megillah is what they call it, the entire book of Esther. But it's special reading in that what happens is everybody is encouraged to be interactive as the story is read out loud. For example, when you get to the story, the name Haman, which is the evil villain in the story, everybody is supposed to boo, stomp their feet, and twirl noisemakers until his name gets drowned out. And anytime the name of Esther is mentioned, there's supposed to be cheers and celebration of Esther as the, as the hero of the story, so to speak. And so it's very, uh, it's very interactive. It's the only time where it's a mitzvah or a command to make a lot of noise. It'll be read from a handwritten parchment scroll. Not only will you go the evening that Purim starts, you'll go the next day 
and it'll be read once again, so you'll hear it twice. The second thing that happens is, during the festival, you give to the needy. All of the Jewish community is required to give uh, at least money or food to two needy people during the daylight hours of Purim, which is on the 24th this year. And if you can't find any, the synagogue will have a collection that they'll take up for that very purpose. But you are to give to whoever asks without verifying whether they deserve it or not, which will go along with the story of Esther. And even the children are expected to fulfill this command. The third thing that happens, and one of my favorites is, you send food gifts to your friends. You send a package containing at least two different ready-to-eat food items and or beverages to at least one of your Jewish acquaintances. Men will give to men, women will give to women, and it's preferable that it be sent via a third party. And this is where kids typically come in and love being the ones who are delivering the food packages to their Jewish family and friends. And then the last thing that happens is the feast. You gather with your family and invite several guests, and traditionally, the meal will begin just before sundown and will last well into the evening where you are commanded to sing songs and to drink and to laugh and to have fun in celebration of the amazing and miraculous story of Esther. And so with that, let us journey together through the story of Esther. To do so, I'd like to take you to Iran which I know sounds a little weird as most Americans have no desire to go to Iran. They're kind of in the news a lot and there seems to be a lot of controversy attached to it. But I do need to take you to what is the modern city of Shush, Iran, because that is the location of what was the very ancient city of Susa, the great capital of the famous and powerful Persian Empire. In fact, you'll see some pictures up here. Here are the remains, the ruins, so to speak, of Susa. You could kind of see uh, the, the remains. Here's another one uh, that they've uncovered, archaeologists have uncovered. I think there's one more here, kind of in the gates going into it. Now, the year is about 486 to 465 B.C. The powerful Xerxes I, or Xerxes the Great, was ruler of the Persian Empire. And we've got a couple pictures. Here's uh, Xerxes. Here's his senior yearbook photo here that they took of him. Here's another one that they have, very good looking. Uh, And one of the things that you'll read in the story is he's kind of famous for offering and issuing a lot of edicts, and we actually have a picture of one of his edicts, which is amazing to me in preservation in terms of this is an actual edict issued by uh, Xerxes, which I'll I'll read you that Persian script in just a little bit. Uh, Just kidding, I can't read Persian. And (laughs) here is uh, Xerxes' tomb is right there where you can see. And the next will show a map of the reign of King Xerxes, everything there in light blue. It goes from India, you could see, uh, all the way to uh, the Bible uses the Kush is the word. That's where modern-day Ethiopia is today. So that whole area, I mean, it was the largest empire in the known world at that time. And with that, the story of Esther, chapter 1, verse 1. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the military leaders of Persia and Medea, the princes and the nobles and the provinces were all present. For a full 180 days, think about it, that's six months' time about, He just displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty, meaning he was showing off, right? Like, nobody is as rich as I am. 
Nobody has amassed what I have amassed in regards to riches and resources. And so he just puts it all on display for six months' time. Then anyone could come and just look at the vast wealth and resources of the Persian Empire under his leadership. Now, when these days were over, when that six-month period of time was over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days. It's a whole week of partying in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people. I mean, from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa, the garden had hangings of white and blue linen, which were the colors of the Persian Empire, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver, which is nice. Not quite like those reclining leather ones that I have, but they're still nice. On a mosaic pavement of just precious stones like porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and other costly stones. Wine was served in goblets of gold, and each one different from the other. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, right? There's no cutoff. It's not a cash bar. Like, you could have as much as you'd like. For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Now, Queen Vashti, his queen, she also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. And on the seventh day, when King Xerxes was high in spirits from wine, which is the Bible's way of saying he was drunk, yes, some of you were too quick on that. He commanded the seven eunuchs. Now, in case you don't know what a eunuch is, they are men who have been castrated, thus safe around Xerxes' women, and they served him. Mahuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass. And what he did is he sent them to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown, listen, 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 in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was, the Bible says, hot. Right? The king is still in the mood to show off. But this time, it's not just his wealth and his resources and all of his money. No, no. Now, to come out in front of all of his drunken subjects, let me bring my queen out to show off her body. He had already cued the DJ to play, look at that body, look at that body. I work out, you're sexy, and you're, right? That's just already worked out. Well, when the seven eunuchs go to Queen Vashti and deliver the king's message and request for her to come out and be paraded in front of all these drunk subjects, she said, oh, no, he didn't. Like, that's what she said. Verse 12. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. Then the king became furious, and he burned with anger. Drunk, nonetheless. Now, Queen Vashti refused the king's command. Now, listen, to our modern 21st century ears, it's easy for us to applaud the queen and say, you go, girl, good for you. Stand up for yourself like that, not letting that king just parade you around as if your only identity is to be used as a piece of objectification and gratification to a bunch of drunk men. But I'm telling you, in the Persian Empire in 480 B.C., no one says no to the king, no one. And even though Vashti is queen, that does not mean that she is co-ruler of the empire. It does not mean she's an equal sovereign to her husband. Rather, she belongs to her husband. There's not mutual anything. He is the king. And no one says no to the king. And this would even be the template, so to speak, 
for all married relationships in the patriarchal in a patriarchal society, and that is that men get their way, men dominate. And so it says in verse 13 of Esther 1, Since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and who were closest to the king, Karshina, Shethar, Admantha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Memukan, the seven nobles of Persia and Medea who had special access to the king and were highest in the kingdom. And so this is what he says. According to the law, what must be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then Memukan replied in the presence of the king and the nobles. Here we, this is what he says. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and really all the peoples of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And so they will despise their husbands and say, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of the nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the exact same way. There will be no end of disrespect and discord. Woman, make me a sandwich. Go make it yourself. That's what's going to happen. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Medea, which cannot be repealed, that Vashti is to never again enter the presence of King Xerxes. And let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she, meaning someone who is submissive and obedient as good women are supposed to be. Then, when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, All the women then will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. So you see what's happening here. Xerxes calls his advisors together, and one of them, Memicon here, he sees an opportunity to assert himself. He's going to take advantage of the situation and manipulate the inebriated king and blow this completely out of proportion to national and universal proportions. Rather than simply saying, Your Majesty, You've had a little bit too much to drink. Why don't you just go ahead and sleep this off? Let's not do anything rash. Or to say, it's all right, just swallow just a little bit of humble pie here. It's going to be okay. Let's just let's let this go. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> what he does is he steps in and he says, what the queen has done, has, it's not only an offense to you, but to every man and every person in all the province of the kingdom. Right? I mean, like, it escalates quickly in this matter. And you see in the story, insecure men obsessing about female submission. You know what's going to happen. All the women in the kingdom will hear what the queen did and do the same to their husbands. They're going to throw off their rightful role as submissives and dutiful wives and refuse what their husbands demand. Because if history has told us anything, it is that men are in continual pursuit to keep women submissive and obedient. For women to lack any sense of autonomy in themselves and to be free to have their own thoughts and opinions of their own. And here you have Queen Vashti, this seemingly feminist upstart, has finally allowed for the wishes and the thoughts and the opinions and even the desires of women to have a say. This is sort of like a suffrage movement of 480 BC. I am Queen Vashti, hear me roar. You go, girl. So the solution to the feminist upstart 
make an edict that cannot be repealed, declare that she can't ever come into the presence of the king again, effectively both divorcing her and banishing her from the king's court, and then just replace her with another woman who will toe the line. Well, verse 21, it tells us the king and the nobles were pleased with this advice. <laughs> well done. That sounds perfect. So the king did as Mimikin proposed, and he sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household. Amen, men? Amen. No, that's where you're supposed to be quiet. <laughs> that's when you're supposed to go, I don't know what he's, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm like, He sent those out using his own native tongue. Now, we don't ever hear about Queen Vashti again. Like, she's lost to us in history. But her presence is important because it serves two important things so far in our story. Number one, from a literary standpoint, the opening act here serves as an important purpose. It warns the reader to watch out for Xerxes and his court. They're kind of swarmy individuals who have a habit of in inebriated and in rash states making kingdom-wide decisions based on personal offenses and whims, and they ought not to be crossed. And this will add suspense and drama to the story as it unfolds. But theologically, and I'll come back to this in a moment, but theologically, it's beginning to set up this truth. The emperor has no clothes. And what I mean by that is he isn't nearly in control of history as he thinks he is. Earthly powers and authorities are really but an illusion, which is important for us to remember as we enter into another election cycle here in the United States. Xerxes is not really in control of history. Under the golden chairs and the six months of showing off the vast riches of an empire, the drunken parties, the large harems, the patriarchal edicts, is really nothing more than an insecure, sinful, weak, and powerless individual who isn't nearly in control as much as he thinks he is, or the advisors who are around him. There's another power at work that at the moment no one realizes, but it will soon be evident. Xerxes is not wearing any clothes. Let all earthly rulers, great and small, whether in households or heads of nations, be warned. Well, then you turn the page to chapter 2. Let me read this beginning verse 1. Later, meaning when he sobered up, (laughs) King Xerxes' fury had subsided. He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Right now he's looking back at Vashti and thinking, actually, I love that woman, right? And in my drunken state, now he's sober and he's picking up his cell phone. He's looking back at all those texts that he sent. He's regretting all of them at this moment. Verse 2, so none of the king's attendants like to see him sad because that's just bad for them as well. So they show up in verse 2 and they propose this. Hey, listen, king, here's what we should do. Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, which is the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, because he's a eunuch. The king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young woman who who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. And this advice appealed to the king. And he decided to follow it. So what you have next is a beauty contest, so to speak. It's sort of like a pageant. We're out to search for the most beautiful woman in the kingdom who has everything the king would want. But 
Before we move too far into the beauty pageant template, let me remind you, women don't voluntarily sign up for this. This is not what's being asked. They didn't work their way through the ranks of local pageants where, oh, you're Miss Blossom Festival winner. Ooh, now you're going to Miss Michigan. Like, that's not how it's working. Doting mothers aren't putting on costumes and makeup on their girls. They aren't helping them with dance routines to win this talent competition. Let me remind you, Esther is not a Disney princess where a handsome prince is on the search for the beautiful girl who just happened to lose her shoe. Every subject belongs to the king. And he is free to take what he wants. Their own sexuality will not be their own. It belongs to the king. And what he wants, he takes. And he doesn't need a father's permission to do so. The language in the text is not to have a voluntary beauty pageant, but rather it says to bring all of the beautiful women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. It is by force. Cinderella is not free to flee the ball at the stroke of midnight because she belongs to the king. No one is free to flee, at least not without consequence. And here's one of the interesting things historically. Uh, We have a Greek historian, Herodotus, wrote the history of the Persian Wars and will record for us some of the actions and behaviors of Xerxes I. And in it, he will record every year Xerxes will go throughout his kingdom and collect 500 young boys and castrate them and make them eunuchs to serve in his royal court. Every year, 500 young boys. And in it... No one volunteered their son. No young boy thought, I'd like to be castrated and become a eunuch. It was by force. No one had free reign over their own bodies. What the king wanted, the king got. And here we will find a common point between both Esther and the eunuchs in her charge. So this is what happens in verse 5. Now there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shemi, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those taken captive with Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. And when the king's order had, and edict had been proclaimed, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther also was taken. You hear the verb there? Notice the language. Mordecai didn't, he didn't sign her up. He, he didn't see an opportunity for Esther to receive a rose from the bachelor. No, she was taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, one of the eunuchs, who had charge of the harem. But look at verse 9. In regard to the eunuch, she pleased him and won his favor. And immediately, he provided for her with her beauty treatments and special food. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. Now, what's so interesting, and you will find this to be true with many heroines of our faith, they don't necessarily buck the system. Meaning, they're living in a patriarchal society. The king has all reign, all power, all authority, and they don't necessarily go against that system because they cannot. It would mean for them certain death, if not banishment, as the story of Queen Vashti proves. But they're smart, and they're cunning, and they're able to take advantage of the system that they find themselves in, and they're masterful at leveraging what is to get their way. 
Esther, I would suppose, and I would propose, (laughs) is not necessarily a feminist hero. She is far more complicated of a character than that. She has great depth and complexity. You would be hard-pressed to keep Esther in a predictable box, but she is like many other women in the Old Testament who leveraged the system, just simply what was, for sometimes even the sake of God's purposes. You can see this in the story. Remember Judah and Tamar? What does Tamar do? She leverages the system that she finds herself in. So does Sarah. So does Rachel. So does Abigail. So does Ruth. They work the patriarchal system to their advantage rather than work against it because Esther is seemingly without any power. And it would be note, it is the king versus Esther. She is a woman, an orphan nonetheless, in an ancient Near Eastern society. Listen, she wouldn't even be free to decide who to marry for herself. She would have absolutely no say in the matter, let alone have the freedom to choose whether she wants to be in the harem or not be in the harem. She would be considered at birth the property of her father. And he would be free to do with her as he sees fit, whether to sell her off so he could pay off his debt or to demand a bride price for her in an arranged marriage. And then she would be handed, Esther would, around from home to harem to the king's bed. Their bodies belong to others, so much so that the story doesn't even picture this necessarily as being forced. It is just what it is. If Esther has feelings or thoughts on this matter, they're inconsequential. They're not even mentioned in the text, and they would have mattered only to her. But what we find in this little verse here, verse 9, is Esther gains. It's in the active voice now. For the first time, it's not passive. She gains. She does something to win the favor, or the Hebrew word is hesed, which we talked about last week in the social justice system, the, the compassion or kindness of the head eunuch, Hegai. And we don't know how. We don't know what she did. Maybe she just played the system. Maybe manipulated him. Or maybe she had a great sense of humor that matched her beauty, and the eunuch liked that. Or maybe they bonded together one time about the fact that they share a common experience of both being taken into the service of the king. Come on now, my pictures are on point today, right? Come on, help me. (laughs) She uses the system to her advantage, and it wins her kindness. Now, here's what it says in verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. What that means is, don't tell anybody you're Jewish. Don't reveal that. And every day, he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. See, to make things worse in regards to powerlessness, we learn Esther is Jewish. She belongs to a persecuted and subjugated people. They were in Persia by conquest, and they didn't fit in. So for her sake, Mordecai had to instruct her, don't tell anybody that you're Jewish. But you could see, out of concern for his now adopted daughter, who, listen, had been taken from him, what does Mordecai do? Every day he tries to walk by the courtyard just to get a glimpse of information on how his adopted daughter is doing. Verse 12, it says this, Before a young woman's turn came to go into King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. They were six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. And this is how she would go to the king. Anything she wanted was given her to take with her from the harem into the king's palace and bedchamber. In the evening, she would go there and then in the morning returned to another part of the harem to the care of Sheshgaz, the king's eunuch who was now in charge of the concubines. 
and she would not ever go back to the king unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by her name. Well, when the turn came for Esther, the young woman that Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihel, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the harem, suggested. See how smart she is? See, Haggai knows how this works. He's seen this over and over again. He knows the preferences of the king. And so he says to Esther, bring this. And that's what she takes. And Esther then won the favor of everyone who saw her. Now, could you imagine a year of beauty treatment? That's a lot of oil of Olay. <laughs> but they were to be at the, their peak capability of beauty and attraction. You could not go see the king in some subpar state. So however beautiful you can be, that's what you need to be as you enter into the presence of the king. And in case you missed it, because these are the parts of the children's story we leave out, right? This is not in the flannel graphs that you got in Sunday school in regards to the story of Esther, because the Old Testament has sort of a way of euphemistically saying to us when it says that she spent the night with the king, that doesn't mean that they stayed up playing Uno and getting to know one another. They may have started with Netflix, but it was really Netflix and chill. The king slept, come on, right, am I on today, right? Like, the, the king slept with, the king slept with every woman of the harem that was brought to him. Esther is taking her turn having sex with the king, and indeed she will have no choice in this matter. Her refusal would be to her death or banishment, you remember Queen Vashti. As she enters into the private bedchambers of the king, she brings with her only what her friend, the eunuch Haggai, who knows how things work and perhaps what the king prefers, tells her to bring. And this is what it says in verse 16. She was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the tenth month, the month of Tibeth, in the seventh year of his reign. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. And the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all the nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the provinces and distributed gifts with royal liberality. It worked. Esther had some skills. She pleased the king more than all the other virgin women in the harem. She was promoted from an unknown harem girl to queen, the replacement of Vashti. And thus, a holiday and banquet is in order. Now, the chapter ends like this, verse 9. When the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, but Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality just as Mordecai had told her to do so, for she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions and she had done as she had done when he was bringing her up. And during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who regarded the doorway, got angry and they actually conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about their plot and then told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king and gave all of the credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles, which hurts. All this was recorded in the books, book of the annals in the presence of the king. Now, this seems like an odd ending to the rise of Esther, but it is an important note in our story. I would just simply say, hang on to this. I know it seems disconnected, but it will become critical. We'll come back to this next week. But if you were living in this story, as we just kind of wrap this up, if you were living in this story, 
rather than, you know, we have an advantage reading it, right? As the reader, you kind of know things that the characters in the story don't know. You get narration and you get some information that each individual character would not have, meaning if you were actually Vashti or Esther or Mordecai or King Xerxes or Haggai or Mumukan, you never piece together or even see what's really happening here. And what we can see is, had it not been for King Xerxes' pride, he would have never called for 180 days to display his wealth and resources. And had it not been for King Xerxes' desire to party, and even in the end, lustfully flaunt the beauty and sexuality of his queen, he would have never called to show off his queen to please his nobles and military leaders. And had had Vashti not in that moment decided to disobey the king's command, there would never have been an opportunity for Mimikon to manipulate and blow out of proportion the situation And had Memekon not blown the situation totally out of proportion, there would have never been a deposed Queen Vashti. And had there not been a deposed Queen Vashti, there would have never been a taking of the most beautiful virgins throughout the land. And had a couple of Jewish parents who had a beautiful baby girl named Hadassah not died, she would have never found her way into the home of her cousin Mordecai, who lived in Susa, the capital city of Persia. And had she not found her way to the home of Mordecai, she might not have ever been taken into the harem of the king. And had she not befriended the eunuch Haggai, she might not have ever received favor and special treatment to set her up for her appointed night with the king. And had she not had that appointed night with the king, she might not ever become Queen Esther, queen of the most powerful empire in the known world. And if you lived in this story, you would not even once have been able to connect those dots and see that something bigger was taking place. That at face value, it would seem that the powerful were really the ones who were in control of this situation. But from our vantage point, we get a closer look. We realize that the powerful in this story are just as much at the, of, at the mercy of a much greater player. They will fit into the puzzle of history in the exact same way that the seemingly powerless Esther, a Jewish orphan girl, will have. Esther is the story of God's providence. The idea that even though we can't see it at the moment, even though we would never be able to connect the dots, even though it feels very much like our fate in life is very much dependent on those with power over us, we are confronted with this one fact. God is the one who is in control of history. Your ex-husband is not in control of your history. Your boss, no matter what he marked on your latest performance review, is not in control of your history. Your parents, no matter how determined, either in their attempt to control or your desire to please, are not in control of your history. (laughs) Your sins and mistakes, no matter their nature, are not in control of your history. You are not in control of your history. And I know we find inspiring those memes that tell us to go out there and get it. But what Esther reminds us is, yeah, you you don't have that much control. God is in control of your history. God alone reigns over time and circumstances. He is the only one who has the vantage point to bring His goodwill to its completion. We call it the providence of God. It's the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. 
The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole, the physical world, the affairs of nations, human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of his people. The doctrine stands in direct opposition that the world and the universe is governed by just chance or fate. Barack Obama is not in control of history. Hillary Clinton is not in control of history. Donald Trump is not in control of history. Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, and Kylo Ren are not in control of history. God is in control of history. And this God will use your ex-husband and your boss and your parents and your sins and mistakes. It will bring it to his glorious purposes in ways you would have never seen while in the midst of it. They are not disconnected parts. They are not irrelevant footnotes. And one day, as you get to see the full picture, you'll be able to look back yourself and say, had it not been for my ex-husband, I would have never. And you could fill in the blank. Or had it not been for that job that I hated, I would have never. Had it not been for that complete mistake I made that I thought was going to totally ruin my life, I would have never. And you'll see God himself bring it all to completion. That's what Paul reminds us in Philippians 1 verse 6, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it out to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It might not make sense at the moment, and you will not even be spared the emotions and thoughts that will accompany each of those experiences. Esther wasn't. You'll be tempted to think that this is all for nothing. But the story of Esther thus far reminds us that God is on his throne, that he alone is sovereign, that he is in control of history. In all of your present circumstances, whether they're good or bad, I would challenge you to look them right in the face and with great faith just declare, God somehow, some way, is going to connect these dots. And that your present circumstances doesn't get the last say, God will get the last say. Amen? Let's pray together. God, right now, we just pray in your mercy that you might show us the bigger picture. That there are many in this room right now that are desperate to figure out how and why what they're going through can in any way in the end be redeemed by you. And I'm not even saying that you are causing all these things. What we are trusting in is that you are a God who is sovereign, and through your providence, somehow, some way, you'll connect all of these dots, and we'll be able to see how it's ultimately leading not only to your glory, but to your goodwill, even for our own sake. So I pray even now that you give us faith in that, courage in that, trust in that, and if you'd be willing, the mercy to be able to begin to see, oh, that's why. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.